From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Pharmaceutical and chemical giant Bayer has lost 20% of its market value after a jury found the herbicide Roundup caused a man's cancer. Investors were stunned by this very large verdict, $289 million. It was a unanimous decision by the jury. And, of course, we have thousands of more uh, lawsuits making very similar claims that will be relying on similar evidence. What Bayer knew about the risks of Monsanto's signature product, Roundup. Also working to rebuild Puerto Rico's farming sector after Hurricane Maria. Since the hurricane was a cyclone, it brought some salt water and... Um, some sand with it, so everything that was in his path, it looks like you threw herbicide. All of our production for years of tropical trees, like mango trees and passion fruit trees, they all died and they all were blown away. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A finding of consumer deception against Monsanto, makers of the widely used herbicide Roundup, is costing its new parent company more than $20 billion in lost market value as its stock price has tanked. In June, the German pharmaceutical and chemical giant Bayer merged with Monsanto by paying over $60 billion just two months before a California jury ruled unanimously in favor of Dwayne Lee Johnson. Mr. Johnson is a former school groundskeeper, and the jury agreed his non-Hodgkin's lymphoma was caused by the herbicide Roundup and ordered Monsanto to pay $289 million in damages. Now, Bayer has to pay those damages, and the company is likely to have to pay thousands of other people who claim Roundup caused their cancers or other health problems as well. Carrie Gillum, a journalist who has reported extensively on Monsanto, joins us now. Carrie, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. So tell me, why have Bayer's shares reacted so dramatically, dropping, what, some 20% in just a matter of weeks here? Yeah, I mean, Bayer's shares are are definitely taking a hit. And really what this is, is it's the fault of the uh, Bayer executives who did not properly warn their shareholders that this potential liability was out there. Investors were, were stunned by this very large verdict, $289 million. It was a unanimous decision by the jury. And, of course, we have thousands of more lawsuits making very similar claims that will be, be relying on similar evidence. I mean, potentially we're talking about billions of dollars in potential payouts in damages. Uh, you know, at some point, if these things continue to snowball and the plaintiffs continue to win, there will be settlement talks. And the numbers that I've already heard tossed around are, you know, three to five billion dollars potentially. Of course, it's not just damages that Bayer has to worry about, but how are consumers considering this company now? You know, I mean, what, you, what you're seeing is sort of a continuation, um, a building of concern around the world. You already were seeing different localities and states and countries looking at banning glyphosate products, and you're now seeing even more of that. Uh, you know, every bit of news on this causes heightened concern, obviously, with consumers. You're seeing some retailers talk about pulling these from their store shelves. You know, this is, this is resonating definitely around the world. Now, what do you think the chances are that the $289 million awarded to the plaintiff, Dwayne Johnson, could be overturned or reduced? So the legal experts that, uh, you know, I've consulted and and that are talking about this really say there's very little chance. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of uh, legal 
standing for Monsanto to get this thrown out like they've asked the judge to do. They've asked for a new trial and they've also asked the judge to issue a judgment notwithstanding to substantially reduce the damage award. But you know, the judge was very uh, favorable and very generous to Monsanto during the trial already and, and kept a lot of evidence that Monsanto didn't want in, kept a lot of that evidence out. There doesn't seem to be a lot of room for Monsanto to get this thrown out at this point. So, Carrie, what was the evidence that the plaintiffs wanted in this case that the judge said, no, 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 I'm going to honor what Monsanto wants. We won't let this in. One of the key things, I guess, that Monsanto really did not want in there was any sort of direct comparison to the tobacco industry. You know, as we know from litigation in the tobacco industry, we know there was very much a playbook, a strategy to deceive consumers and and keep them from understanding the risks of tobacco and its connections to lung cancer. And the very same playbook, you know, there's evidence that that very same playbook has been used by Monsanto to keep consumers from understanding the risks of glyphosate herbicides. You see the same players. In fact, Monsanto's own attorney in this Roundup litigation made his fame and fortune defending tobacco companies. They didn't want any of those comparisons in, and the judge largely sided with Monsanto on that. They didn't want people to know about a ban in Europe on one of the key ingredients in the Roundup products. The judge sided with them on that. They didn't want people to know that California had ordered companies to start putting warning labels on Roundup and other glyphosate products. The judge sided with them on that. You know, a lot of information like that was kept from the jury. And still, you know, they came up with this huge verdict against Monsanto. To what extent does this verdict say that Monsanto deceived consumers knowing that it had a problem product it had put on the market? The jury found, you know, not only that there was enough scientific evidence to connect these products to this individual's cancer, but that Monsanto acted with malice and negligence in refusing to warn people. Because, of course, there are years and years and years of scientific studies that have come out from independent scientists that do show connections between glyphosate-based products and cancers and a range of other illnesses. And Monsanto's long been aware of these. And the jury was saying, you know, they should have warned people. They should have at least given people this information. This wasn't about banning glyphosate. It was about warning consumers about known risks. And of course, Monsanto didn't do any of that. They did the opposite. They tried to suppress that information, tried to hide it, and tried to discredit scientists who raise those warning bells. You mentioned negligence, but you also said malice. To what extent did the judge and jury find that Monsanto had acted with malice in distributing uh, and encouraging the use of Roundup? Well, that was part of the questionnaire. Uh, You know, that was part of what the jury had to determine. And they really seemed to be moved by the fact that this individual, Lee Johnson, called Monsanto. He was very worried. He'd been diagnosed with cancer. He was worried about whether or not he should continue his job, should continue working to spray these products. And Monsanto never warned him, even after these international cancer scientists said there was a connection. They never got back to him and they never warned him. And I know the jury really seemed to take issue with that. Now, uh, Bayer's CEO, Werner Baumann, is facing questions as to whether he and the other executives really did a a full-scale assessment, uh, properly evaluated the risks of taking over Monsanto. How much trouble could he be in now? 
Well, there, there's definitely talk of uh, shareholder lawsuits against Bayer and against the executives for not really, you know, doing their due diligence and for not warning investors properly. It doesn't seem like they really were on top of this at all. I mean, anybody who's been paying even a little bit of attention knew that there was this potential for a huge jury award, certainly. You know, he, in his conference call with investors right after the verdict, he didn't even have the proper classification from the Center National Cancer Agency. He he said it was a rated a possible carcinogen. Well, that's not true. It was rated a probable carcinogen. He didn't have a clear grasp of the facts as he was trying to reassure investors. And that tells us he didn't have a clear grasp of the facts, uh, you know, going into this at all. Carrie, are you saying that the Bayer executives didn't understand the science here? I don't think that they were paying a lot of attention. Uh, They were relying on the assurances by Monsanto that this was really nothing to worry about. And the Bayer executives did say in this call with investors right after the verdict, they did admit and they said they didn't have a lot of visibility to Monsanto's internal documents. You know, they only closed this deal with Monsanto in June and just really got the integration closed in August. So they're claiming they didn't they didn't have good insight at the time. So what options, if any, does Bear have to say, hey, Monsanto, you really didn't disclose properly to us. We want to walk this deal back. We want to unwind this merger. Well, they're certainly not talking about that at all right now. And they're showing no signs of backing away. In fact, they are you know, saying they're going to double down and uh, bring all of their legal strength to bear to try to, you know, fight this verdict and and to fight the trials that are upcoming. We have several new ones um, that are being scheduled for 2019. So, you know, this could go on for some time and it's certainly going to cost a lot of money, at least in in legal fees, um, for sure, if not legal payouts. And speaking of legal fees, with this win, how soon does the plaintiff, Mr. Johnson, and his attorneys get paid? Well, you know, that's uh, <laughs> that's a good question. They Monsanto is appealing. They uh, The money actually gets put into an account right now with interest, and it's accruing interest on a daily basis. Mr. Johnson, I my understanding is he's getting a little bit of money right now through sort of a, a you know a loan against what his payout would be, but you know it could be a year or more before before it's really all settled. The interesting thing on this is that Mr. Johnson's attorneys had actually offered a settlement of six million dollars to Monsanto in April, and Monsanto turned it down. Carrie Gillum is a journalist and author of Whitewash, the story of a weed killer, cancer, and the corruption of science. Carrie, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Thanks for having me. We asked Bayer for comment. They replied in part, Bayer stands behind its glyphosate-based products, and we are confident that the company will ultimately prevail in this litigation based on the extensive body of favorable science. You can find their entire statement on our website, LOE.org. So uh, let's take a look behind the headlines now with Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta. Hey there, Peter. How you doing? Doing all right, Steve. Hope everything is well up there. I want to talk a lot about Hurricane Florence and some of its aftermath. Uh, You know, North Carolina is the number two state, believe it or not, 
in solar energy production behind only California. And there was actually some relatively good news out of Hurricane Florence. The solar industry says it weathered the storm fairly well, even if all of the power lines that carry electricity didn't. What was the secret? Did they just tie them down? Well, there's one Duke Energy facility that uh, says they are able to automatically lock their solar panels in place. And the rest of it was just that the um, panels were constructed well enough that the Category 1 winds that came ashore in North Carolina uh, weren't enough to do any damage. Unlike some of Duke Energy's other means of generating power for the Carolinas. There was a coal ash uh, dam that ruptured and sent toxic coal ash into a waterway. Uh, Also, the Brunswick nuclear plant near the city of Wilmington uh, was preemptively shut down. And uh, it looked like uh, solar energy was one of, if not the most reliable source of energy through the storm. Now, what about wind? There's only one large industrial scale wind farm in the state of North Carolina. They say they did well during the storm also. So sustainability sustained itself through the storm. What else do you have on Florence? The National Flood Insurance Program often pays time and time again for homes that are in harm's way from flooding uh, to be rebuilt or repaired. Uh, One example is the town of Bellhaven, which is on uh, North Carolina's Outer Banks. 1,600 people, and over the decades, That community has received $13.4 million uh, in uh, payouts from the flood insurance program. Another example is uh, an individual house in the town of Nags Head on the Outer Banks. Uh, The house was demolished a few years ago, but before it was demolished, it had received payments from the National Flood Insurance Program 28 times. Oh, my. Hey, what do you see in the history vault this week? Uh, We've got a two-day event on October 2nd and 3rd of the year 1970. President Richard Nixon went on an environmental rampage and created two agencies. Uh, On October 2nd and 70, he created the EPA. The following day, he created the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, two of the backbone agencies for government environmental protection uh, for uh, the past almost half century. And the government hadn't been doing this stuff before, or? They'd been doing a lot of it, but it was uh, divided up into small offices in different government agencies uh, around Washington and around the country. And what Nixon did administratively is bring a lot of this work under two new roofs of NOAA and the EPA. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve, thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. There's more on these stories at our website, LOE.org. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 
In the woodlands of the West Indies lives the Cuban toady, a tiny bird no bigger than a cigar. But as Michael Stein tells us in today's Bird Note, the little toady has a voracious appetite for flying insects. This staccato call comes from the throat of a Cuban toady. A bird that's almost indescribably cute and the top of the must-see list of any birder heading for the West Indies. Because although it's not much bigger than a hummingbird, a Cuban toady packs a lot of pizzazz into its tiny body. It's big-headed, short-tailed, brilliant leaf green with a geranium red throat. And as if that weren't enough to be noticed, the Cuban species features a touch of blue on the sides of its throat. Its long, flattened bill looks like it's built for insect catching. And indeed it is. In woodlands throughout the island of Cuba, toadies are terrific foragers. In fact, their Puerto Rican cousins have been known to catch up to one or two insects a minute, hunting from dawn to dusk. Their wings make an audible whirring sound each time they do this. And you may find a toady just by listening for that sound. I'm Michael Stein. For pictures, migrate on over to our website, LOE.org. This week, we continue our series looking at how Puerto Rico is recovering after Hurricane Maria laid waste to the island in September of 2017. We've looked at the resiliency of the corals, the forests, the drinking water system, and the people themselves. Now Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom checks in on the farming sector. She went to Puerto Rico nine months after the storm and met some small farmers who lived through it and were still working to rebuild. Even before Hurricane Maria uprooted trees and people, Puerto Rico imported roughly 85% of its food. After the storm, that number shot up to 95% imported food, if you could get it. Many people were forced to skip meals and eat shelf-stable and canned food for months. Nine months after the storm, one of the only places to find locally grown food on the island is farmer's markets like the Saturday market in Rincón on Puerto Rico's west coast. Do you have kale? Yes, we have kale. Do you have baby kale or you want um, dinosaur kale? Dinosaur kale, how's that? Sonia Carlo's nearby farm is slowly recovering from the storm. Today she's brought pineapple, papaya, mushrooms, and the kale she's explaining to a customer. And they're two for five, so if you want both of them, good. <laughs> I like kale. What's the single bill for? Uh, three or two for five. You got change? Yeah. Okay. I'll take, um, I'll take both. Why not? One-on-one? See? Thank you. Sonia's bright smile makes her a natural salesperson. So it's pretty, it's a good time to be at the market right now. (laughs) Sonia says things are just starting to turn around for her family and the farm. They're finally harvesting again, and her farm-to-table restaurant, Sana, opened just a few weeks ago. But Hurricane Maria was devastating for them. 
The storm destroyed her home. She had to send her three children to Florida to live with family, while she and her husband, living in their car, rebuilt the battered farm. Well, we got really trashed. All of our production for years of tropical trees, like mango trees and passion fruit trees, they all died and they all were blown away. We had uh, uh, trees that were 100 years old and, uh, you know, totally perished. Since the hurricane was a cyclone, it brought some salt water and um, some sand with it. So everything that was in its past, it looks like you threw herbicide. Across the island, tall fruit trees were the most heavily damaged food crop. Root vegetables that could hide underground did okay. Ground plants like pineapples were among the first to recover, and fast-growing vegetables like salad greens were easy enough. After the hurricane, visitors came to Puerto Rico with their suitcases full of seeds to donate to farmers. Sonia says they actually could have started growing again relatively quickly. But since we still don't have any electricity, we couldn't pump water out, and we didn't have any gas, so it was we weren't able to grow food because we didn't have gas to pull out the water from the water pump, and we, you know, it was just you know, trying to scrape up any, anything, waiting 10 hours for gas just to grow food, and it was very uncertain. Grocery stores are open again on the island, but visit a grocery store in Puerto Rico and you'll be hard-pressed to find anything supplied by local farmers. I went shopping at an Amigo chain grocery store, which is owned by Walmart. There's pineapple from Costa Rica, coconuts from Dominican Republic, honeydew melon from Guatemala. Over here, there's more watermelon chunked up Puerto Ah, I found some watermelon from Puerto Rico. These are watermelon that are already cut up into pieces. The whole watermelon came from someplace else. To understand why this lush tropical island with year-round sunshine and rain imports nearly all of its food, you need to go back to the 1940s and a U.S. initiative called Operation Bootstrap. With the colonization of the U.S., there was a movement to get people out of their farms and into the cities. Adnelli Marichal is the documentarian for the Resilience Fund in Puerto Rico. She says Operation Bootstrap transformed Puerto Rico from a largely agrarian economy to one based on manufacturing and tourism. They did that with a patchwork of government tax incentives and access to U.S. markets. The farming that remained was not in the household level, but on a larger industrial scale. Now suddenly it's about making money, so therefore you need to grow things like sugar and coffee. And that's great, but those are not things that people can eat. And the food that is imported to Puerto Rico is on average 20% more expensive than in the U.S. That can be attributed, at least in part, to the Jones Act of 1920, which says any item imported to Puerto Rico must be carried on a U.S. vessel. So if Puerto Rico wants to import, let's say, tomatoes from its neighbor, the Dominican Republic, those tomatoes must first go to the U.S. mainland, more than 800 miles away. They get put on a U.S. boat and then travel back the same 800-plus miles to Puerto Rico. So it's both makes the food more expensive and less nutritious by the time it gets here. It's been on a boat for much longer than it has to be. It just creates a much longer timeline. One of the few agricultural areas of Puerto Rico is called Las Marias. The region is known for growing oranges for orange juice. I drove to Las Marias to meet with a small-scale orange farmer. 
Las Marias is way up in the mountains on the western half of the island. My drive is 13 miles, but it took more than an hour on narrow, twisty, nausea-inducing mountain roads. My GPS signal failed and I got wildly lost. It's difficult to get here on a good day. After the hurricane, it was impossible. Las Marias was cut off from the rest of the island for two months and had to have supplies airlifted in by helicopter. Farmer Domingo Antonio Romano is 75 years old and has a small farm here with his wife, Nilsa. He walks past his chicken coop and stops in front of his only orange tree that survived the hurricane. He used to have 20. Before the hurricane, most of Domingo's farm was made up of coffee, mango, and orange trees, the very crops most impacted by the storm. 90% of our farm was destroyed, but it was really like 100%, because with the hurricane, no one could come here to harvest. Near the one surviving orange tree, amid debris of tree limbs and weeds, is a small patch of vining plants. This is a purple yam. They are very good. Root vegetables like yams were really the only food crops that didn't get torn away by the 155-mile-an-hour winds of Hurricane Maria. They were one of the only food crops the Romanos could still harvest and eat after the storm. But animals in the area were also struggling to find food. Wild pigs quickly discovered the purple yams and ate most of them. Before Maria, we have many, but we have nothing. Domingo and his neighbors still had months to go before the roads would be cleared or the electricity restored. He says in that time, they came to rely on each other for help. Before Maria, there was forest everywhere. And then, after Maria, the trees came down and we could see our neighbors and we got to know each other. After the hurricane, there was a lot of empathy between the people and everybody helped each other. And the bees, we got to feed them. After the hurricane, there were no flowers, so we put out sugar water for them. His crops were destroyed and the roof torn off his house. They were without running water or electricity for months. Domingo says it would have been impossible for him to rebuild alone, but he's not alone. Five volunteers from a grassroots nonprofit called El Departamento del Camita, the food department, are here to camp out on the farm for a week and do any work that needs to be done. Clear land, plant crops, fix fences, and repair the roof. The volunteer food department is organized into groups called brigades and are dispatched all over the island. As many as 20 people at a time descend on a farm for a week, bringing with them seeds, tools, building supplies, and the manpower to get a farm back up and running. Eden Freites is leader of this brigade. He says they do this work because the farmers are crucial for Puerto Rico going forward. The farmer is the... the agriculture is like the... Espina dorsal, the backbone, the backbone of the of a country, and and it's the most uh, damaged sector. Uh, I, I think it's the sector that we need more to help because got the 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 worst loss. Me encanta. Farmer Domingo's wife, Nilsa, is in the kitchen cooking lunch for the volunteers. Cassava root, sliced tomatoes, rice and beans. She lifts the top off a pot of soup she's been working on since this morning. 
This has pork, breadfruit, green banana, onion, pepper, cilantro, and garlic. Nielsa says she's happy to have the volunteers here. The work they're doing in a week would have taken her and her husband months. But beyond the physical help, she's grateful for the emotional support and the encouragement the volunteers bring. It's very emotional for me because I was very depressed. It was a very traumatic experience. For months, we were without water, electricity, and a roof. And we were alone. With this group here, I'm just so grateful for the support. So grateful. The volunteer food department has set a goal to send brigades like this to 200 farms across Puerto Rico, large and small, organic and commercial. They simply want to support domestic agriculture in any form. Sonia Carlo from the Rincon Farmers Market says she had similar support, not from an organized group, but from friends, neighbors, and strangers volunteering their time to help her rebuild. What really got us through everything was the community. This, you know, we had a commitment to our community, especially in Rincon. People just said, what do you need? I'll help you. What do you need? You need hands? I said, yeah, we need people. I'll help you. You know, and then that gave us strength to keep going and to producing. And Sonia says that outpouring of support has given her a new sense of purpose to keep on farming. Granted, you see me standing here. I'm working seven days a week, um, but I'm doing it with a smile on my face because I know it's for good. You know, it's for the good of everything. And and I know this is my journey in life, and this is what we're going to be doing. No matter how many hurricanes come, we're still bounce back, and nothing that's going to keep me out. Uh, not not even a Category Five hurricane. For living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom in Rincon, Puerto Rico. Coming up, horizontal gene transfer and rethinking the tree of life. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. About 160 years ago, Charles Darwin wrote Origin of the Species, postulating that life on Earth evolved from ancient species that diverged over time, rather like tree branches from a single trunk. Scientists focused on how diverging species inherited characteristics, as genes were passed and sometimes mutated from one generation to the next. Well, we know life can be complicated, so we should not be surprised that evolution is not just based on the tree of life and inherited genetics. We learned in the 1970s that there are creatures that are kind of in between single-celled bacteria and multicellular creatures like humans, a category of life called archaea that could hold the key to how life got started on Earth. And now science has discovered horizontal gene transfer, which changes genomes via sideways infection, sometimes across species. Author David Quammen tells the story of this new understanding of evolution in his book, The Tangled Tree, a radical new history of life. 
David joins us from Bozeman, Montana. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you, Steve. Very good to be with you. So what is the story that you set out to tell? Well, it's the story of the tree of life as the image of evolutionary history on Earth, which goes back to Darwin, and the way that image, that tree, has been radically challenged and radically revised in the last 40 years because of discoveries from genome sequencing, a kind of evidence that Darwin and most biologists in the 20th century didn't have. And those challenges have been astonishing, counterintuitive, and have reshaped what we thought we knew about the history of life on Earth. To summarize, I think it's fair to say a big takeaway here is that what we think of as species, what we think of as individuals, and for that matter, the whole tree of life where evolution shows species neatly diverging from its origins, well, it's not exactly right. Why is that? That's putting it politely. I say at the end of the book, after having told these stories of these people and their discoveries, that this whole revolution has challenged three categorical ideas, and that's the idea of species, the idea of individual, and the idea of the tree of life. The idea of a species, that it's a unitary thing, it's a population of creatures that are similar to one another, and they interbreed with one another, and only with one another. The idea of an individual, there is an individual named Rufus the Brown Dog, there is an individual named Charles Robert Darwin, there's an individual, Steve Kerwood, David Quammen, and we are unitary and discrete. And thirdly, the tree of life represents the history of life on Earth. It is a tree-shaped history. And it turns out that all three of those ideas, those categoricals, are wrong in important ways. Now, let's talk for a moment. Yours is a story of people, a scientist trying to understand life and how it has evolved, how it continues to evolve. Tell me about some of the characters in your story, especially Carl Woes. Mm, yes. So I came across this fellow early on in my own discovery of this subject, Carl Woes, a microbiologist at the University of Illinois, who came out of nowhere and suddenly on November 3rd, 1977, appeared on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold, a picture of him and a story about his discovery of a third kingdom of life on Earth, a separate form of life that was unknown to exist before that. Before that, we thought there were basically two kinds of life, bacteria and everything else. Bacteria were simple cells. Everything else was composed of complex cells with cell nuclei, animals, plants, fungi, humans. And Woes came along and said, no, wait a minute, I've discovered a third form. And that was the beginning of a sequence of discoveries that he essentially triggered that have led to this new understanding. And by the way, what was it that he discovered? What was between bacteria and multicellular organisms? There was a group of organisms now known as the archaea. Archaea as in archaeology suggesting old, because it was thought that they were the oldest form of life on Earth, maybe. These were creatures that had been taken for bacteria for decades and decades. Ever since people started looking at microbes through microscopes, they thought that these things were bacteria. Woes started sequencing their genomes, and lo and behold, he said, no, these things are not bacteria. If you look at their genomes, they're not only distinct from bacteria, but they're more similar to us, to humans, to all animals, to plants, than they are to bacteria. They are radically 
distinct. And so he announced in a scientific paper, and the press announced in headlines, that he had discovered a separate form of life, a third major kingdom. Now, by the way, about this kingdom that Carl Woese discovered, these are pretty tough characters, aren't they? They're, they're in hot spots with very extreme temperatures, that sort of thing. Well, these creatures, the archaea, at first they seem to live entirely in extreme environments. As you said, um, hot springs in Yellowstone Park, thermal vents at the bottom of the ocean, highly acidic environments. More and more as scientists discovered ways to sequence DNA just out of the wild, they have discovered these creatures live in a lot of different environments, not all of which are extreme. But one of the groups of extremity-loving Archaeans live near vents at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, almost 10,000 feet down between Norway and Iceland. And those archaea are called Loki archaea. And it's now thought that they, in fact, are the descendants of our original ancestors, that we, all complex creatures, grew out of an ancestor that more closely resembled one of those, one of these Archaeans living in a vent at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean than having come from anywhere else. That those are, how to put it, they're the descendants of our ultimate ancestors. That we come from Archaea and not from, say, the bacterial side of the Tree of Life. Then raises the question, maybe they came from someplace else, because if they're really tough noogies, they might have survived interstellar space. You know, that's why NASA funded Carl Woese's work. His original funder, when he discovered the Archaea, one of his funders, was the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. Why? Because they thought that his work might shed light on the problem of exobiology, the possibility of the existence of life on other planets, other star systems, other places around the universe. Tell me a bit more about Carl Woese, the man. He was a biophysicist. He was trained at at Amherst and then at Yale in biophysics. That was his PhD. And then he went to work for the General Electric Labs in Schenectady, New York. They hired him as a research molecular biologist, and he really had no idea what they wanted him to be doing. He sat in a lab in Schenectady for a few years, noodling around and trying to make some important discoveries. He was always interested in pure science and the deep questions. What is the shape of the early history of life and the history of life since then. Eventually, he was hired away to the University of Illinois, where he could be a cranky, crotchety professor that (laughs) didn't spend much time with undergraduates. He was a terrible lecturer. He was reclusive. He didn't participate in faculty committees. He was just this brilliant grouch who could be wonderful to his students, could be a fine, generous mentor, but could also be this total reclusive grump, a complicated man with different sides to him, which is part of what attracted me to him as a character, as the central character of the book. The other thing that attracted me was that I quickly saw that he's probably the most important biologist of the 20th century that nobody has ever heard of. So one could say that convergence is a major theme of your book. And of course, in the Darwinian tradition, uh, where genes pass vertically from parent to offspring, we draw trees to represent this movement since the limbs on a tree only diverge from other branches. But David, if the tree of life is not actually a tree, how might we best describe evolution based on what you've researched and written about here? 
Well, some people say we should think of a web and not a tree of life, because as you say, convergence is very, very important. A network of life. One fellow suggested a circle of life. And yet the tree is still mostly right. It captures some big patterns, but there are exceptions to those patterns. The tree image was valuable to Darwin and the people who followed him because it represented the divergence that has occurred through the history of life. One lineage diverging into two lineages, one limb into two branches, etc., and species diverging from one another. All of this divergence that led to the diversity of life that we see on Earth now. But it's not just a matter of divergence. The discoveries that flowed from from Woese's work and his methodology, including things like the prevalence of a phenomenon called horizontal gene transfer, genes moving sideways across boundaries, those represented convergence. And so the real history of life is a history of lots and lots of divergence complicated by a lesser but very significant amount of convergence, genes moving sideways, branches of life coming back together. And that's why I titled my book, The Tangled Tree. So let's talk about horizontal gene transfer. Please describe this phenomenon for us and and how revolutionary a discovery it was. Right. Well, when I first came across this, probably back in 2013, I mean, I had written three, maybe four books about evolution before that, and I had never heard of horizontal gene transfer. So suddenly I came across it in reading some scientific article or a blog or something in 2013, and my first reaction was, what, what, what? That's impossible. That's just not supposed to happen. I mean, yes, if you have two very similar species, closely related, then sometimes individuals mate and hybrids are born, and occasionally those hybrids are even fertile, so that two closely related species may overlap and connect a bit. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about genes moving across broader gaps from one unrelated species of life into another, horizontally, as opposed to vertically, which represents parents to offspring, ancestors to progeny. This was sideways movement of genes, so that a gene from a bacterium is showing up in an animal, a gene from a virus is showing up in an animal, a gene from one kind of animal is showing up in a completely different kind of animal. How can that happen? The short answer is infection. One scientist called this infective heredity. How accurate is it to say that bacteria can become part of our cells in the form of mitochondria? Well, mitochondria are an important part of this story. Mitochondria are these little organs. They call them organelles in cell biology. They're the organs in our cells that package energy. We have thousands of them in each of our cells, and they're completely essential for packaging energy that our complex cells can use. So where do those mitochondria come from? Well, it turns out they are descended from captured bacteria. They have DNA in them, but it's essentially not human DNA. It's bacterial DNA. What happened? Well, about 2 billion years ago, one ancestor cell of all complex creatures either swallowed or was infected by a single bacterial particle. And instead of digesting it or rejecting it, it accepted it. And that bacterial particle stayed, replicated, adapted, changed, became 
symbiotic with the host cell that it was in and eventually evolved into mitochondria. This was an idea proposed back in 1967 by the great microbiologist Lynn Margulis, and everybody thought she was crazy, or most people thought she was crazy. And then when Carl Woese's methodology came along, she was proved right. Now, when Lynn Margulis came up with, what was her concept? She called it something like genetic chimera? Yeah, she called all creatures chimera, meaning composites of different kinds. I mean, a Greek chimera is a combination, say, of a lion and a hawk. She revived this theory that she called endosymbiosis. And part of the theory was this idea that our mitochondria are captured bacteria. And she also argued that there are organelles in plant cells called chloroplasts that do the photosynthesis. She argued those two were captured bacteria. And then people came along in the footsteps of Carl Woese and said, well, let's test that idea by sequencing the DNA in mitochondria, these organelles, or in chloroplasts. And when they sequenced the DNA, those organs contain DNA themselves, apart from the DNA in the nucleus of our cell. People sequenced that DNA and they said, son of a gun, this is a bacterial genome inside the mitochondria. These things are captured bacteria, the descendants of anciently captured bacteria. So these days, uh, then there is, though, a fair amount of horizontal gene transfer happening, but it's mostly, what, among the bacteria themselves? Yes. It seems to be very common among bacteria, almost routine among bacteria. They are, as I said, simple cells. They don't have their genomes locked up inside cell nuclei. That Their genome is a single strand of DNA, and it floats free in the cell. And occasionally, uh, one bacterium sends out a little tube, almost like a penis, to another bacterium, and DNA travels through that tube into the other bacterial particle. But it doesn't have to be the same species of bacteria, which is what makes this horizontal gene transfer so so scrambling, so consequential. And, uh, and how is this related to antibiotic resistance? This is essential to understanding the spread of antibiotic resistance around the planet as a global public health problem. This kind of transfer that I just described with a tube that goes out and a little loop of DNA being sent through that tube from one kind of bacterium into another, this, scientists now understand, is what accounts for the speedy spread of antibiotic resistance around the planet. What do I mean by that? Well, resistance to one kind of antibiotic can evolve gradually in one kind of bacterium by the old-fashioned mutation, incremental mutations, the old-fashioned Darwinian mechanism, and then natural selection works on that. And then after a period of time, well, this bacteria A is resistant to antibiotic 1. But now we know that by horizontal gene transfer, once that's happened, bacteria A can pass that resistance gene to bacterial B, C, D, F, G in an instant by horizontal gene transfer and can receive other resistant genes the same way. In fact, there are now whole packets of genes for resistance to four or five different kinds of antibiotic that can be passed in an instant from one kind of bacteria into a completely different kind. So the problem rises by Darwinian mutation and natural selection, and it spreads lightning fast around the planet by horizontal gene transfer. Oh, my. So, David, I want to go 
to this question of just who are we? Who or what is David Quammen? Who or what is Steve Kerwood? What is an individual if if we're not the sort of individuals we thought we were looking at, at Darwin's thinking of evolution? Well, Lynn Margulis would say we are chimera. Others would say we're mosaics. We are individuals, as, as we've said before, but our individualness, our individuality is a compoundment of other creatures and DNA that has come to us by several different routes. One route is through lineal descent, through all of our line of animal ancestors, but DNA has also come into us by horizontal gene transfer, come into us sideways, come into us by infection. So that, Steve, you and I and every other human now, our genomes are 8% viral, for instance. 8% of our genome is viral DNA that has come in sideways by infection. Plus, we contain bacterial DNA in the form of all the mitochondria in our cells. Plus, we probably contain other bits of bacterial DNA that has been brought into our genomes by infective heredity, by horizontal gene transfer. So who are we? Well, we are individuals in quotation marks who represent the phenomenon of mixing as well as the phenomenon of linear evolution that have shaped life on this planet. I mean, I think that's that's a humbling thought, but it's also an inspiring thought. It connects us even more closely with all other kinds of life and with the, the history of life on this planet. David Quammen is an award-winning science writer and journalist. His book is called The Tangled Tree, A Radical New History of Life. David, thanks so much for taking the time today. Steve, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Kristen Briscoe, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doran, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Jake Rigo, Sarah Rappaport, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, iTunes, and Google Play, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. PRI Public Radio International.